0: and uh, welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. Uh, We're discussing the democracy illusion this evening. It was Tony Benn who said that democracy is the most revolutionary thing in the world. He said that if you have power, you need to use it to meet the needs of your community. But how much power do politicians really have in this deregulated world of neoliberal hegemony? I spent much of my time as a Labour MP campaigning for greater democracy inside the Labour Party. Without a democratized party, I felt that the chances of democratizing the economy were less than zero. But the sad truth is politics is manipulated by wealthy individuals and corporate interests. In other words, the 1%. The 99% have very little influence over political decisions other than a vote once every four or five years. We're not consulted about life and death decisions like war and economic austerity. And even the vote we get once every four or five years has been neutered because there's very little difference now between the two major parties. And power is overly centralised. There's too much secrecy, despite the Freedom of Information Act, and there's no real accountability either. So joining us again this evening is Rod Driver to continue our Elephant in the Room series. So, Rod, uh, how should we be dealing with this glaring democratic deficit?
1: Uh, Well, that's a good question. So uh, if I uh, spend the first uh, 20 minutes or so uh sort of summarizing a little bit uh, more about what you've discussed although your first one or two minutes was actually a beautiful summary of the key uh the key problems so i'll talk more about those and then we can talk a bit more about uh how perhaps we might uh sort of improve democracy uh and do some some q a uh in the second half of the show so uh so let's just sort of start with the basics so democracy is meant to mean rule by the people and you could you can make a reasonable case for saying that in Britain and America, perhaps between approximately 1950 and 1970, democracy seemed to be working up to a point uh, in both Britain and America, and uh, the the quality of life for ordinary people seemed to be improving, and we had the the National Health Service and so on. But in fact, rich and powerful people realised quite some time ago that it's possible to actually create a political system That looks like a democracy where people go and have a vote once every few years, but where, in fact, that vote has very little effect on the most important policies. And we'll talk about which of those, uh, which policies are the most important ones uh, during the show. Uh, So a lot of people call this system plutocracy which is ruled by the rich for the rich. And in fact, an American writer called Carol Quigley wrote a book in 1966 called Tragedy and Hope, where he pointed out that the, the goal for powerful people is to create two very similar parties where people can vote the one party out of office and replace them with another and think they're getting a change in the leadership when in fact the main parties haven't changed. And that's the system that America has had for a, a good few decades now, And it's the system that probably you'd say that we've had in Britain, certainly since uh, Tony Blair has been in charge of the Labour Party. Uh, So since perhaps Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in America and approximately the 1980s, the the whole system in both countries has been more and more dominated by rich and powerful people. And many people commented that uh, Tony Blair and David Cameron were almost interchangeable clones of each other. They were almost indistinguishable. And we've seen that Hillary Clinton has given speeches in America to Goldman Sachs, the bank, where she's paid $600,000 a time. And she says, take no notice of what I say in public. Uh, In private, what I'm doing is running the economy for your uh, benefit. So... It's actually always been the case, there have been very few differences in foreign policy. So uh, even Joseph Stalin pointed out that when it came to controlling Britain's interests overseas, the Labour Party was just as militaristic uh, as the Conservative Party. And if you look at uh, more recent wars, the Iraq war was George Bush, a Republican, and Tony Blair, a Labour leader, And the the war on Libya, the destruction of Libya, was Barack Obama, a democratic leader, and in Britain, David Cameron, the conservative leader. So these parties are all entirely uh, interchangeable. And we've seen very recently that actually when we do have leaders who appear to be more representative of ordinary grassroots supporters, so Bernie Sanders in America and Jeremy Corbyn um, in Britain, that actually the Democratic Party actively worked against Sanders. And the Labour Party have actively worked against Corbyn. When I say the party, I mean the senior people uh, within the party. So uh, we can see that the main parties are not very supportive of more left-wing policies or policies that would represent ordinary people. So we'll talk a little bit more about uh, how this works in practice. So one key area is something known as regulatory capture. So governments are meant to write laws for regulators to implement, to control how businesses operate. But in fact, uh, various commentators have pointed out that actually most laws uh, relating to corporate activity are now written by companies and the lawyers. So in America, one writer pointed out that Monsanto writes agricultural food policy, ExxonMobil does energy and foreign policy, and Goldman Sachs does financial policy. So we have a great deal of influence uh, by big companies behind the scenes that most of us don't get to see. And a lot of that influence contains conflicts of interest. So uh, many people are aware that accountants often advise the government on how to Set up certain regulations in relation to the financial institutions and big companies. But then those same accountants go on to advise their clients, that's rich people and corporate clients, how to get around those same rules. And in Britain, people are aware that many people in the House of Lords have direct connections with healthcare companies and they're part of the system that rewrites the regulations to allow the privatization of the healthcare system. And we have a revolving door where senior people in business come to be, have important roles in government. And it goes the other way, too. So senior people in government go to have uh, important jobs with business. And so these people are very interested in structuring the regulations for the benefit of big business. So if we start to talk a little bit about the concept of power, which is something that I've mentioned before, the most important phrase in all of human history is probably power corrupts. What we see if we look at something like the protests against the Iraq War, millions of people protested in Britain, millions in America, millions in the rest of the world. But those protests were completely ignored. And the the power lies with a very small number of senior people in government. And if they want something like a war, they can completely ignore uh, the mass of the population. Uh, So in Britain, we have something that you might call the Westminster bubble, where you've got a group of people, it can be decision makers in government, it can be the bureaucracy, the politicians, the media, and uh, corporate uh, leaders, and they they have the same mindset, and they work together, and they work very, very privately. And we'll talk more about secrecy and so on uh, during the course of today. And so if you look at something like the health service privatization, it's all being decided behind the scenes. Ordinary people only have any say at all sort of after the event, protesting against rules that the government has already decided it wants to, to introduce. And particularly since 2001, we've seen governments in both Britain and America introducing more and more laws and becoming ever more repressive. And so particularly you had the creation of Guantanamo Bay. You had lots of torture. You had. Uh, people being flown around the world to in secret uh, with extraordinary rendition, and Britain and Europe participated in this. And since we've had the coronavirus, we've had even more laws being created, which are e- ever more repressive and trying to crack down on protesting and our ability to actually stop the government doing whatever it wants to do. So there's a real problem with a lack of accountability. Now, this works in a number of different ways. So at the moment, the government aren't really accountable to ordinary people at all, and big companies are not accountable to anyone in any, any real sense. So governments should have a responsibility to the population. They're supposed to be making laws and rules that are intended to work for everyone, because in fact they're completely ignoring Uh, their responsibility to the whole population and they're focusing very much on to them their most important constituents which are the rich and the biggest companies and their wealthiest donors the people who fund their election campaigns and so on and we've seen that uh, more and more laws are being introduced to allow say MI6 or undercover operatives to operate outside the law and we've seen there's a crackdown. On critics of the system, so most particularly Julian Assange and more recently Craig Murray, who are strong, strong critics of the system, and they've both been persecuted for criticising uh, the system, and whistleblowers are being um, being prosecuted instead of being uh, protected, and so there's no sense of accountability. Now, in 2014, an American writer called Mike Lofgren wrote a very important book called Anatomy of the Deep State, and he pointed out that a great deal of the most important decision-making takes place behind the scenes. It's kind of invisible. It has nothing to do with Parliament in Britain or with Congress in America. So people talk about it as a state within a state. So you've got some government departments, you've got intelligence agencies, lobbyists, think tanks, the military, are the most important or most powerful companies. So it's banking, IT, energy, and food. And they have their their secret meetings and they make policy between them. And it's important to understand that politicians come and go. Sometimes politicians can be in a department for a very short period of time, but the career bureaucrats can be there for decades. And it's they who are making the key decisions behind the scenes uh when working with senior people from companies senior people in the military and so on so the two areas that mike lofkin identifies as being really important to rich and powerful people are firstly national security so basically foreign policy do we fight wars do we invade other countries and so on and the second set of policies where rich and powerful people don't want ordinary people to have any influence at all is corporate dominance, the ability of companies to control more and more of the economy and to extract more and more wealth from it. Now one of the things we're seeing very clearly uh, is uh, the scale of secrecy and the scale of lying by the government and so we should have a Freedom of Information Act to enable us to get information. But in fact, there are so many exemptions and categories of information that don't have to be uh, given to the public, that it's not effective. So anything that's considered to be sensitive or anything that has the label national security or national interest attached to it, uh, the different government departments are finding ways not to release that information. And in America, The CIA, their main intelligence agency, has an enormous black budget, which means a secret budget it is not overseen by anybody. It's estimated to be approximately 50 billion US dollars, but it could be much more than that. Uh, so nobody knows what that is used for. It can be used to overthrow governments in other countries, and we will know nothing about it. And then you've got other agencies in America, the NSA, the National Security Agency, and in Britain, GCHQ. These are the two main spying agencies. They're trying to tap into everyone's computers and phones and spy on everybody. Um, all the time they want to know everything there is to know about everything now one of the things you realize if you ever look at documents that used to be classified but no longer are so these are known as the declassified files we have some very good historians there's an outstanding guy called mark curtis who works at the website declassified uk and he spent his life going through these declassified files and what he realizes is that Uh, National security and official secrets uh, actually have uh, very little to do with national security. And it's mostly about covering up crimes or unethical activities or embarrassments by very powerful people. So even insiders have admitted there is massive overclassification. And in fact, you could make a strong argument for saying that apart from defensive weapon systems, there's actually no case for keeping anything else secret for any serious length of time at all. That, in fact, the default position of a government in a genuine democracy should be complete transparency about just about everything. And there should be complete accountability about everything. And, in fact, there should be no reason why a politician or a bureaucrat should even want to keep things secret the fact that they are trying to keep things secret shows that in general they have something to hide and in fact one of the things that wikileaks and julian assange pointed out is that our whole system of democracy has essentially become inverted we should be able to see everything the government does but we should be able to leave lead private lives in fact it's reversed the government can spy on us all the time we have no privacy And yet the government keeps many, many things secret, most of which should not be secret. They should be transparent. We should be able to analyze what they're doing, and we should be able to question them and hold them to account. Okay. so the final section that I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit more is the system of lobbying. Now, every now and again, the mainstream media do mention the idea of lobbying. So this is when powerful people, professional lobbyists, go and have quiet conversations with government ministers, politicians and bureaucrats behind the scenes to try to influence them. usually get to get policies made that benefit big companies uh, or other influential uh, groups. And uh, if if I use the word uh, corruption, most people intuitively think, about a brown envelope stuffed full of used notes being handed under the table. And that's that might be the standard sort of corruption that you see all over the third world. But in fact, in Britain and America, corruption is much more sophisticated than that. It's actually built into the system. It's essentially become legalized. So it's what's known as collusive corruption. That is when different groups of people collude together, or they work together to achieve their goals. And so uh, donations where big companies will fund the activities of politicians, especially in America. Politics is incredibly expensive. And in return, there will be favors and influence. This is a form of bribery. It's legalized bribery in any other uh, uh, part of society. We would always call this bribery. But in fact, nobody does. They just call it lobbying. It's legalized bribery. And it's buying influence. And it's an enormous industry. So it's estimated that there are approximately 25,000 full-time lobbyists. And that's in Brussels, which is one of the two main centers, because that's where lobbyists can influence the regulation relating to Europe. And then Washington is the other main center for lobbyists. And that would be on a similar scale. And then the third biggest lobbying center is London, particularly with financial uh, lobbying. And various studies have analyzed these. In fact, there's a great deal of secrecy about lobbying in Britain. It's it's much more open and transparent in in Washington uh, and Brussels. But still, in all of these areas, there is more secrecy. But one study found that uh, in Washington, just the financial companies alone were employing five lobbyists for each politician and so the whole thing is secretive it's all quiet uh deals conversations that nobody else hears about and in fact the revolving door that i mentioned earlier uh now there's become a very big revolving door between lobbyists and government and so in fact very recently the uh the former chief lobbyist for santander one of the biggest banks is now head of The European Banking Authority, that person has no interest in properly regulating Santander or any other bank. So there is no chance that whilst that person is in charge of the regulatory authority, that the banking sector will be properly uh, regulated. And in America, becoming a lobbyist is now one of the main uh, occupations of retired senators they earn huge amounts of money and the reason former politicians and former bureaucrats are such good lobbyists is because they know exactly how the system works they know who to talk to they know which buttons to press uh, and so on so in america particularly but the same in britain to a lesser extent is big companies make donations to both major parties because they don't care which party gets into power either party can be bribed to make legislation that suits the interests of the companies. And so there's lots and lots of academic research showing the more money companies spend, the more influence they are able to buy. And so in America, they have all these fundraisers, which is basically this system of money for votes. And you'll see that we have a steady privatisation of the healthcare system. And this is happening because people behind the scenes representing the biggest American Healthcare companies are influencing the policymakers in Britain. So, I'm not going to talk for too much longer. I just wanted to uh, wind up with one final point, which is that mostly when people talk about lobbying, they talk about corporate lobbying. But in fact, there's another form of lobbying which uh, is just as uh, large in scale and in some ways is actually more dangerous. And that is that other governments lobby behind the scenes. So one of the things that WikiLeaks realized or WikiLeaks discovered is that whenever uh, information came to them about any government in the world, often that information contained information about the American influence in that other country. And WikiLeaks realized that actually America is active behind the scenes all the time using a combination of threats and bribes and sanctions to get other countries to change their policies, usually economic policies, but sometimes military policies as well, to fit in with American uh, requirements. So to join NATO or to be involved in um, putting pressure on uh, another country, maybe a developing country, to open up its markets to American and European uh, companies and so on. So America does massive government-to-government lobbying behind the scenes. Some people, particularly Chris, I'm sure will be aware that Israel does a great deal of lobbying behind the scenes, but also Britain does its own lobbying behind the scenes. And in particular, it's been very influential in blocking stricter banking regulation uh, in Europe. Uh, So so this government-to-government lobbying is going on all the time. Now, the media plays a role in perpetuating this myth of democracy. So in a number of different ways. Firstly, they always maintain the charade of democracy. They always talk about democracy in Britain and America as if it's genuine, meaningful democracy. The idea that it might not be an effective democracy, you never see that discussed in the mainstream media. But the media also have other roles. So one of them is to smear critics of any parts of the system that, that we're talking about in these, in these talks. Uh, and in fact, there's, there's some great examples of how the mainstream media works as a propaganda system and even pretends to be critical of the system. So there was a, um, there's an interesting case a while ago where there was mainstream discussion of cash for honours. Now, clearly, that's corruption. You pay a bribe, you get an honor. But um, uh, in fact, whilst the media talked about that quite openly and were critical of that, they never talk about the, the deeper, more widespread issues that are wrong with democracy. They still pretend that, on the whole, it is a genuine functioning uh, democracy. OK, so there's there's a 1,001 additional points That you could talk about so Chris at the beginning mentioned the fact that even within individual parties like the Labour Party uh, we don't uh, that's not a particularly democratic party as many members have discovered uh, in the last uh, couple of years but uh, why don't I finish there and we'll open the discussion up um, yeah thanks
0: Yeah, that's great. No, thanks very much indeed. And uh, you very eloquently explained the problem. Um, what do we do about it, though, Rod? That's, that's the $64,000 question. What would your recipe be for that? Well,
1: I, I don't think there's a quick fix, unfortunately. And it's the same with nearly all of the things that I talk about, and all of them are interconnected. So there are certain things that you could you could immediately kind of latch onto and say we could we can solve this easily so a simple one is lobbying government uh uh, corporate lobbying now in fact this does get talked about in the mainstream press and the conservative party have said i know let's have this idea we'll have a lobbying register we'll make the whole system more transparent now that by itself would be a useful first step for everyone to understand fully what's going on. But one of the things that you realize about the way uh, PR companies and various other organizations work is that when a problem becomes so obvious they have to uh, engage with it, what they'll do in the first instance is to try to come up with suggestions um, that are not likely To be very effective and so the idea of a transparency register is a good example of this people a few years ago talked about executive pay and they said what we need is more transparency with executive pay and then some of these executives might be a little bit embarrassed And perhaps that will uh, bring executive pay down a little bit. Well, we do now have a lot more information about executive pay. There's a lot more transparency. It hasn't made the blindest bit of difference. Executives don't get embarrassed. And you have to actually start introducing rules to stop these things happening. Now, with lobbying, there's actually no reason at all why companies and professional lobbyists should be allowed more access to politicians and access to bureaucrats than other groups of people and individuals. So in fact, in theory, um, voluntary organizations like NGOs can use lobbyists and can themselves lobby politicians and bureaucrats to get their voice heard. But it's simply a matter of spending power and wealth. That A study in America showed that for every dollar spent by voluntary organizations um, and other groups that might represent ordinary people. Companies were spending over 30 times as much. So they're just getting their voices heard more. They have more expertise, more specialists, more insider knowledge, and so on. So it's it's a completely unfair system. So it would be perfectly possible to actually say, we are not going to allow very powerful organizations to have secret meetings behind, excuse me, behind the scenes with politicians and bureaucrats. We must have transparency. So you could easily have a set of rules that says, if big business is meeting with governments, then that should be recorded on film and everybody should have the right to be able to see what is being said by whom, to whom, about what. There is no justification for any of these things to be secret. Now, in terms of getting the current government to do that, of course, They're highly unlikely to do it until lots more people are aware of the problem and lots more people start to put pressure on uh, in Mm -hmm. relation to that particular issue. And, of course, each week there's half a dozen major issues that I talk about where until lots and lots of people start to firstly understand the system better and then start to get engaged and put pressure on, nothing is going to change. So I think it is going to be a sort of long-term gradual process and uh it's one of those things where if we had a genuine labor party to represent ordinary people and to represent grassroots groups and so on they could start talking about policies related to blocking corporate lobbying blocking government to government lobbying and making the whole thing more transparent but whilst we don't even have a Labour Party that represents ordinary people and we have a Labour Party that's just as interested in perpetuating the status quo as the Conservative Party are, then it becomes incredibly difficult and it's going to just require more and more people to start talking about these things. So it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to be one of many... uh, topics that people have to start to uh, to understand better. Mm.
0: Well, it's part of, I suppose, the uh, political consciousness uh, raising that we are attempting to make a, a start with doing with these Elephants in the Room uh, series, and I know there are a range of other platforms that are trying to do uh, similar work in that, in that regard. But I, I'm like you, Rod, fairly pessimistic about the prospects for the Labour Party to do anything uh, uh, progressive in this area. And when I was an MP, for example, um, you know, big accountancy companies like um, uh, PwC and KPMG were actually seconding people into the shadow teams to advise them. And yes. uh, it's interesting that, um, uh, I mean, obviously, when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader in the Corbyn Project, did take on a lot of vested interest. One of the things that they said, of course, was that they were going to clamped down on the big four accountancy firms, which I'm sure went down like a, a lead balloon with them. And, uh, you know, I think you made the point about how uh, people who threaten the status quo are targeted. And obviously, Jeremy Corbyn was targeted, I was targeted, various other people were were targeted, because clearly we, we posed a threat to that uh, status quo. And, of course, uh, Julian Assange, that you also mentioned, languishing now over two years in, in Belmarsh, um, was somebody who really... Shone a light, not just on war crimes, but on the abuse of of corporate power and the, and the close connection between corporate uh corporations, corporate interests, and 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 the political class. And, and certainly, <laughs> one of the things that he did, of course, and WikiLeaks did, was was to expose the role of uh, Hillary Clinton as a as a Wall Street uh, clone. um But it is a challenge, isn't it? And I know you mentioned as well about. um you know, the difficulties of freedom of, of information. And uh, I was on the uh, on the bill committee for uh, uh, a, a bill that was going through Parliament where I was raising some of these issues because one of the problems we've got at the moment is that companies uh, that take over public contracts as, as public services are privatised, where they're under the public sector, whether it's local authority or whatever, then they are subject to freedom of information provisions. But when they are privatised, the, the freedom of information provisions no longer apply. So as well as them kind of like sh- shutting up shop and making it as difficult as possible for people to access information relating to those areas of public's, uh, the public realm that are still in, if you like, the public sector, um, there are huge tranches of of uh, the uh, uh, public realm, which has been put into the private sector, which then means they're outside of this scope. So. I mean, that's another area, isn't it, that we need to to highlight that that's clear abuse, isn't it?
1: it uh, it's a really good point, actually, and in fact, it's um, it it kind of introduces something that that's actually quite deliberate, and that is that um, powerful people want to find ever more complex ways of avoiding accountability. So, firstly they want to make the system less transparent. So by having a private company that does not have to hand over information under freedom of information uh, requests, that enables them to hide information, but also it makes the system more complicated. And in fact, lots and lots of um, viewers and listeners will possibly be, they'll each have had uh, a personal example of this where you want your let's say you want your local council to do something let's say the rubbish bins and they'll say oh no that's actually being dealt with by a private company now you've got to talk to the private company and you jump through hoops and you try to find some contact details of the private company and you get in touch with the private company and they'll say oh well actually i think that specific matter is probably the 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 council's responsibility Mm -hmm. and they pass you backwards and forwards and you say you have the same thing with gas companies and in in fact it's everywhere you look in modern society and this is a very deliberate strategy by these organizations and by government that in fact by by having a system of sort of contracting or subcontracting or outsourcing it, it enables people to avoid responsibility it always enables somebody somewhere to pass the buck to somebody else and this is not accidental this is a deliberate part of the system so that most people will actually give up trying to get anything sorted out. You know, it's just too difficult to find out who to call and who to contact, yeah. and which heaps yeah. you have to jump through and which departments to go through. And most people just don't have the time or the mental energy to do these things. And so that in itself is another part of the system that is heading rapidly in the wrong direction that we all need to fight against. And Part of the problem, of course, is there are so many specific things that we need to be fighting against. For most people, it's just completely overwhelming and they just give up. And Mm. one of the things that I've been thinking about a little bit more this week is about thinking, is there a specific thing that we could kind of get people to talk about more that that might kind of be slightly easier for people to engage with? And... One of the things in relation to lobbying is that the government introduced some very inconsistent rules where they give subsidies to companies and they allow those companies receiving those subsidies to come and influence government. But if a government gives money to a voluntary organisation, an aid organisation or an NGO, they've tried to introduce rules to say, well, look, if you're receiving government money, You can't use that for politics. You can't Mm. use that for lobbying. You can't use that to influence us. All you can do is use it to spend a little bit in a third world country building some shelters in an emergency or something like that. So it's actually to get the organisations that might oppose corporate power and all these various things that we're talking about to make them back off, to make it much more difficult for them to talk about politics. And one of the things I think that those groups – have got to do is to say, we're going to take no notice of that. We are going to talk about politics and we're going to work together to talk about politics. And I'm trying to draft something at the moment where I would like every voluntary organisation, in fact, every individual, everybody who's watching this programme, to start thinking about a very specific question, uh, which is sort of why lobbying takes place in the first place. But the question is, what can we do about corporate crime? And corporate unethical activities. And I think if people were to engage with this one specific question, then it would link into how do we deal with lobbying, and it would also link into how do do we hold powerful people to account uh, and so on. Because most people um, who would be watching your show would be, they've seen the 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 shows we've done on corporate crime and how the economic system is rigged, but If they were to um, try to start a discussion about corporate crime, they would have other people who would not be their natural allies most of the time on their side, because even most right wing people that I meet object to corporate crime. They don't have a real problem with companies pursuing vast wealth and they don't even seem to have a problem with the economic system being loaded in their favour. it benefits them much of the time but they do have a problem with organizations and people breaking the law and i think it's an area where we could get a very large mass of the population and a lot of ngos all working together to say corporate crime is outrageous and the lobbyists part of what they're doing behind the scenes is to work with government to find ways to hide those corporate crimes. So if we start talking about corporate crimes, we are also talking about exposing lobbying and so on. And I think we could get an awful lot of people and organisations speaking with one voice saying we have to deal with uh, with corporate uh, crime. So if, if mm. listeners have got any thoughts on that, then, mm-hmm. then feel free to... Uh, to uh, to give us any questions, any comments, or any uh, any thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, I'll go to Sean in, in a moment. But uh, I was up in um, Batley actually with uh, Sean this week campaigning for for George Galloway. We were were knocking on doors in uh, a relatively poor part of the constituency uh, council estate where you talked Rod about people giving up, and a lot of people were very unhappy. About the quality of service being provided by the council, just in terms of the street scene, for example, and they tried and tried and tried, and and uh, the common theme was a lot of people are just are just given up, and I just wonder, therefore, before I bring in Sean, I mean, do you think that using the, the, the you know the the existing system of democracy that it that it's possible to uh, actually get the kind of reforms that that I think you and I want to see or, or is a is something more radical required to overthrow the current system to uh make the sort of changes that are necessary uh possible to be brought about
1: well I, so i think that's very difficult to answer and i think this is a question that we'll sort of come back to uh in uh, in future weeks and so on in that i to my way of thinking within the existing system It is possible to make change, but it requires that people stop giving up and recognise that we can only bring about change with strength in numbers. And this is one of the things about, uh, as you're aware, and lots of of listeners will be aware, loads of people have been leaving the Labour Party because they object to kind of paying their subscriptions to enable it to fund what is actually quite a right-wing organisation. But from outside the Labour Party, for the time being, people have no kind of unity, no strength in numbers and so on. So it is really a question of everybody who would like to see change saying to themselves, I am going to get actively involved. And I know this is a huge step for many people uh, who, who are overwhelmed with the stresses of life, the universe and everything and starting to say we could change the Labour Party if we had a massive grassroots movement, and its goal was not just to support Jeremy Corbyn, but its goal was to transform the Labour Party. But at the same time, I actually think we need to be thinking kind of multiple things working together. There is no guarantee that we can bring about change through the Labour Party, but there's no guarantee that you could bring about change easily from outside the Labour Party either. And I think we need to be working on both of these together I think everybody who doesn't want to work in the Labour Party needs to be working actively outside, but in a very constructive way and working out how to coordinate their actions. But then I think at the same time, it would be great if lots of people who are disillusioned with the Labour Party thought, well, actually, that's the simplest route back if we can take control of the Labour Party rather than allowing it to be hijacked by a a group of, of powerful Um, Mm. people but either challenge is immense and I think it's one of those things we'll we'll work on both together and it's impossible to say ultimately where the change uh, will come from but ultimately it depends on numbers it depends on everybody saying we are going to do something proactive and the proactive has to be something slightly more than just talking about it and there are lots of people in organizations like Camden Momentum And uh, I know lots and lots of people and they're talking about things. But at the moment, we don't have a mechanism to make their ideas and their beliefs and their wishes go anywhere in terms of policy at a higher level. And we need to start thinking very concretely about how that's going to take place.
0: Mm. I mean, certainly there are campaigns both inside and outside the Labour Party. I frankly can't see what route there is inside the Labour Party to actually regain well, not, well, to gain control, I would say regain control, we've never been, the left has never been, yeah. the membership has never been in control of the Labour Party. It's always been really a tool of the establishment. But, but uh, remember, Rob, that I was booted out of the Labour Party essentially for leading a campaign to democratise the party, which was overwhelmingly popular with members. We had got to the point, I think, that you were talking about where we had the numbers, where there's overwhelming support for change and we couldn't effect it. That's why I'm fairly cynical, cynical about the about the opportunities to bring about change through the Labour Party. I regret to say that, I've got to say, because I gave nearly 45 years of my life to the Labour Party. I wanted it to be successful. I used to dream about a day when we had a left-wing leader and a mass movement, and I used to encourage people who were very cynical about, cynical, I can't say the word cynical tonight, who were cynical about the uh, about the Labour Party before Jeremy came along, and I used to urge them to join the Labour Party, look and join the party, And then it makes it easier for them, for people like me, for people like us to be create that critical mass to bring about the change. we got that critical mass. We have the membership. They were overwhelmingly supportive of the change that the sort of changes that, you know, we've been talking about that are absolutely necessary to bring about in the country. Because it's the point about democratizing the party was in order to democratize society. It's not just an, an end in itself. And uh, and we got done over for it. I was well, you know, I was I was I was chased out of the, the I chased out of the party. As were many other other people. And regrettably, not not one single parliamentarian raised their head above the parapet. Not one of them to defend me or to defend anybody else, or indeed to champion that cause of democratization. And I say, not one, not one. That includes Jeremy. Yes, uh, I, and it's I, it's very very sad state of affairs. But you know, uh, that's what happened. That's yeah. the truth.
1: I, I think you may well be right and uh, it's impossible to, to know for sure where change might come from uh, in terms oh, of numbers, in terms of numbers what I'm just going to say so I, I believe the Lone the party had about half a million uh, grassroots supporters and so of course what you realize is there's an enormous mass of the British population never goes anywhere near politics at all except mm. to have a vote. Once every five years, which is a very poorly informed vote because they don't do any research and so on. And I think we're going to have to find ways to connect with the other 60 million people or, you know, exactly.
0: You. But that's what the Labour Party should have been doing, was starting Absolutely. to do, I think, was building that mass movement to do precisely that. And then they flunked it. I mean, it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy. I mean, the historians will <laughs> write about this period and say what yeah. an opportunity that was thrown away. And it's criminal, frankly, uh, what, what happened and, and the, the timidity and the betrayal of, of senior people in our party who actually, we, we, you know, we were marched to the top of the hill. We, we glimpsed over the, uh, the mountain top. We saw the promised land and then we were marched back down again. I mean, it's totally unacceptable what's happened. And now people are living through the consequences of it. We saw some of those people who were living with the consequences of that up in Batley. Uh, this week, when we were when, when well, Sean was with me when we when we were knocking on doors for George Galloway. But let me bring in uh, uh, bring in Sean to see what uh, the reaction's been from our from our viewers for the last fifteen minutes.
2: Hi, good evening, and welcome to the back room chat room. I think I've got a new phrase there. Uh, <laughs> please don't forget to subscribe and click the bell icon for further bro- broadcasts. It also helps with the YouTube algorithms. Um, you can join the Resist Movement at www.resistmovement.org.uk. Get involved with our local groups and receive our weekly newsletter. Before we take some questions, um, as Chris said, we were up in Batley and Spen on Monday, um, helping George Galloway on the campaign trail for the Workers' Party of Great Britain to become the next MP on the by-election in the by-election on the first of July. So I just want to give a shout-out um, to some of the organisers and campaigners who gave us a very warm welcome um, and made us you know feel you know welcome to be there with them that was taff ed joty pete chris helen rob alice jess and anyone else that i might have forgotten i think you're doing an amazing job and we'll see you again on saturday so just for a few comments and a couple of questions rod for you uh kevin rathbone says lobbying equals how to corrupt our dodgy ruling class government Jonathan Cooper says corruption is actually the norm in the British state and not an aberration or fault. Diana Isselis uh, says that uh, genetic modification corporations and Bill Gates are determining our agricultural policy. I'd like to know a little bit more about that, Diana. Um, Sensibilian says they spent lots of money and years setting all this up and they've done us up like a kipper. Our NHS will be gone by the time we need it. Um, Just a a quick question, Rod. Um, Do you think we'll win back our democracy if we can stop politicians from taking money from lobbyists? Uh,
1: So I think that would be a, a useful step. So it's money from lobbyists that means that basically the politicians are in the pockets, quite literally, of, of the lobbyists and the big companies. And so if you change the system of kind of funding and you remove, uh, you basically you remove the bribery because as, as one of one of the commenters commented, corruption is built into the system. You know, as I say, it's not an anomaly. It is how the system is intended to work. Uh, if you can remove that uh, transfer of money uh, and also the sort of transfer of influence and the ability for politicians to jump Straight into bed with companies when they leave politics, then I think that would make uh, a big difference. Uh, I, I think there is then a chance that uh, the politicians uh, could represent a more general constituency, you know, regular people, rather than just being completely beholden to lobbyists and uh, and big companies, which is the situation very clearly at the moment in both Britain uh, and America. But I I don't think this sort of change happens overnight. So I think one of your commenters made the point that they've been developing this system for many, many years. It hasn't just sprung up out of nowhere. It's developed over decades and it's becoming more and more entrenched. And I think it will be a large scale, long term sort of fight back uh, to change it. So anybody who's thinking that, you know, you're going to see great change in six months or a year and so on, I think is possibly being uh, rather optimistic. And uh, so uh, one of the things that that I I came to the conclusion a long time ago, I'm not the first person to say the things that I'm saying. So there have been famous writers, most notably in America, a guy called Noam Chomsky, who some people would have heard about. He said nearly all of these things before. He's been saying them for decades and decades. He talks at universities all over the country. He was voted, uh, you know, the world's most important intellectual at one point. So lots of people have heard his ideas. But among the mass of the population, nobody gets to hear these ideas. They are still just watching mainstream television every day, which is giving them this illusion that we have a functioning democracy, that when we drop bombs all over other countries, we're the good guys, war is peace sort of thing. And they do believe the propaganda. And uh, in a future week, we may well talk about human psychology because I think mostly it's interesting, but actually it's really important to understand how it is that propagandists get away with what they get away with and why it is that the vast majority of the population is so easily um misled so it is going to take time and it's about building these kind of very large networks and so the thing that i would focus on would be educational networks but there's lots and lots of different types of networks that people need to to develop but (coughs) one thing that i would really like people who watch these um programs to start thinking about is whenever they talk about any of these topics to slightly change the way they talk about them. So the vast majority of people, if you talk about, say, secrecy in government, most people accept the idea of lots of government secrecy and accept the need for a system of freedom of information that you have to fill in lots of paperwork and so on to extract information. We need to move away from accepting that system Mm. at all We need to be saying the default position of a democracy must be almost complete transparency. And I put almost in there just because of this exception about defensive weapon systems. Well, I I should. I always think there's an irony about saying the only things we need to keep secret are the technical specifications of defensive weapon systems, because I, I would bet a lot of money that Russian and Chinese intelligence know the specification of our defensive weapon systems as mm-hmm. well as anyone in the world. Trying to keep that yeah. secret isn't isn't going to work. So in which case, you simplify things, you get to the point where you say, we don't need anything to be kept secret and the default must be transparency and the default must be accountability. And we've got to stop the media and we've got to stop the politicians getting away mm-hmm. with the existing conversation which is an unstated belief that secrecy by government is okay and often what you'll find is underpinning any conversation that we have when we talk about these topics deep down buried underneath rarely discussed there are some unstated assumptions and so there's an unstated assumption that governments even democracies need to keep some secrets well no they don't You know, in general, governments shouldn't be keeping any secrets in a democracy. Mm. And so we need uh, we need to change that conversation. So everybody who hears this next time you talk to anyone about it, change that conversation. And the Mm. same is true of lobbying. A lot of people would think, well, if we had a lobbying register, that would make it okay. Well, no, change the system, change the conversation to say the default position should be that. Big, powerful companies and rich people should not have the need to have these quiet, secret chats with politicians where they're making donations and policies getting changed and their lawyers are writing policy and so on. That should not be the default. And we need to uh, to move away from that. And at one point Mm. you mentioned the accountancy firms and they are among the biggest crooks in the world, partly because. They help all the other firms, all the other big companies, manipulate their books. And there was a very famous incident where British Aerospace paid a £7 billion bribe to the Saudis to get the Saudis to buy British weapons. The accountancy firm somehow missed that bribe. You can't miss a £7 billion bribe, you know. So this is corruption by the accountancy firms. And In fact, there's a guy in the House of Lords now, Prem Seeker, who uh, was one of the leading academics who studied the accountancy firms. And he came to the conclusion the whole accountancy system of big business yeah. should be nationalized. You know, yeah. and that that might seem like a big step to somebody who's never come across this idea before. But actually, once you study it, that is the logical answer. Mm. You know, the default position where we have these giant but very corrupt accountancy firms with huge conflicts of interest. They always have an incentive to give a very nice set of accounts to their clients because they want their clients Mm. to to employ them the following year and so on. So they have incentives to lie and to to cook the books. So the the existing default position needs to change. So we need to keep changing the conversation.
0: Yeah, Uh, and part of that changing of the conversation, uh, Rod, surely uh, should be down to the trade unions. And they they ought to be doing more, in my opinion, to be uh, raising political consciousness, political uh, education, and uh, obviously there's a big captive audience there and they, they've got a big job to do. And I think they're falling down on that job. And so I think we should be urging people who are watching are trade union members should be changing that conversation in their own trade union branches. And by the way, just in relation to Noam Chomsky, he was dismissed as a crank, you know, for having the temerity to support me during the witch hunt. He issued a statement in my defence and was dismissed as a crank. I mean, you know, you couldn't make it up, could you? But there we are. That's, that's the sort of thing that we're up against. But anyway...
1: I, I do agree with you about the unions. I think they have the potential to play a hugely positive role in uh, getting people to understand more, but also in getting the conversations changed across a very broad range of topics. So I think your your point that if we've got any viewers uh, who are in a union, and uh, there are lots, uh, you know, my, my wife works very closely with the university's union, and we do need to try actively to get the Mm. unions to change what they talk about, the way they talk about it.
0: Yes. Well, Howard Beckett, of course, when he was standing for the uh, General Secretary uh, role of Unite, was talking about uh, establishing a Unite TV, you know, to sort of help, you know, have a bigger platform, I guess, some Resistance TV, with all due respect to ourselves, uh, with the resources that they would have. And, And I'm hoping that given his decision now to step down, that in his agreement to do that, with Steve Turner that, uh, you know, he will embrace that idea because I think that's so important that we do raise that political consciousness and, uh, you know, it's a great medium, a great way of doing it, I think, if they could launch uh, a a TV network like that because clearly our mainstream broadcast uh, outfits are really just propaganda outlets for... For the establishment we've got four minutes left uh, sean and uh, we should come back for any other comments from our from our viewers
2: yeah just a few more comments uh diana is says i'm 74 with crap health i'm worried about the N- nhs privatization if we had any democracy at all the nhs would stay public no one wants it mm. privatized jonathan cooper says revolution is the only solution Um, He also goes on to say that representative democracy is a sham, we should be talking about letting people, we're trying to win over, speak for themselves and Mm -hmm. Damo McDermott says he wishes you were still an MP Chris. Um, With that um, they want to know um, what your experience of lobbyists, your personal experience Chris of lobbyists are Um, and then uh, just one last question to, to Rob, Um, You spoke about corporate crime. Um, If you just look at all the money that's been wasted on bogus PPE companies and track and trace during the COVID pandemic, shouldn't the prime minister or the ministers responsible be charged with misfeasance or malfeasance?
0: Mm. Just just quickly then on on the issue about lobbies, my own experience, my first term as a member of uh, parliament, as I think I was saying in our discussion with with Rod, uh, was I was a shadow minister at the time, people were seconded from big accountancy firms into the uh, shadow uh, ministerial team that I was a member of to, to advise us. So there's having that direct input into our into our policy thinking. And then over and above that, of course, this is just an individual MP, both then and indeed subsequently. I was inundated with, uh, with lobbyists seeking to court me, to speak to me, to meet me, to wine and dine me. I mean, I met some of them, I've got to say, in, in, in the House, but, you know, I tend to give them short, short shrift, really. Because in my view, my role as an MP is to represent the interests of the people that put me there and to represent the interests, yeah, the ideological uh, interests of, uh, of the, what I thought was, anyway, the ideological interests of the Labour Party. Uh, and I believe that that's the most important thing, uh, and we should always remember that. And that was something I always held very strong to when I was a councillor, and particularly council leader, Our role, even when I was a leader of the council, I used to say my role isn't to be a spokesperson for the council. My role is to be a spokesperson for the people that elected me and for the Labour Party inside the bureaucracy of the council to make sure that we can shift the big juggernaut to represent the interests of the people out in the city of Derby. And that same principle, I think, applies or should apply to government. But it doesn't happen. We as Rod has made very, very clear this evening with all the evidence that what is happening is that the you know, these big players have such influence, have such power, because they have such wealth, uh, they're the ones that are, that are calling the shots. And we've absolutely got to get away from that and stop that. But anyway, Rod, just in the... Well, we're actually just about out of time, so this will have to be the last comment. Uh,
1: well, so somebody asked a question about misfeasance among politicians. And I think uh, it's such an important topic that maybe we'll sort of hold that question and come back to it uh in a future week i think because it's it a really a whole interesting... program to yeah. it yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah good point anything else rather final comments
1: uh so i was giving a close eye on the time i just noticed it flicked at eight o'clock so yeah. i think that's that's a good time to uh to end okay. the hearing your personal right. experiences i think is a great way to 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 finish
0: yeah, it's cool. Okay, man. No, that's like right. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks everybody for watching. Thank you, uh, Rod, for another fascinating, really interesting uh, contribution this evening. Thanks everybody again for watching. We'll be back next week at the same time at seven pm. So hope to see you then. Until then, good night and look after yourself. Have a rest of the evening. Good rest of the evening, should I say? Thanks a lot. Good night.